I'm Kevin Mims with the Invading Sea, a Florida-wide media collaborative that reports on climate change in the state. As part of that effort, we've started the Business of Climate Change, a weekly interview with businessmen and women whose companies are either affected by the warming climate or address climate challenges. Today's discussion is with Albert Slapp with Coastal Risk Consulting, a company that offers a pretty unique combination of tech and reporting services meant to help clients better understand and plan for climate-related issues. Albert, let's start with a couple of questions um, about the climate situation here in Florida. You are down in the Palm Beach County area. What are some of the things that you've seen uh, there with climate change? Okay. Well, first, Kevin, thank you very much for including me and our company in your programming. We really appreciate it. So one of the things that um, we have found in our work and our studies and our technology of uh, climate change and the impacts to coastal areas, as we're in a coastal area in, in South Florida and Palm Beach County, is that at least in the next 30 to 40 years, um, you can't make doom and gloom predictions for large areas. You really have to drill down into um, you know, more granular uh, look at properties, roadways, communities, uh, local governments, counties. You, so, so when people say, oh, the, the, the market, the, the real estate market's gonna collapse because of sea level rise. Uh, if you wanna go out to 2100 and we don't reverse uh, the global warming, uh, it's pretty easy. I mean, a fifth grader could probably say that but if you're trying to buy or, or sell your, your house or your commercial real estate, industrial, or your government agency trying to figure out what to do next, it's very site specific. So do you have any examples of where Florida is doing things right when it comes to climate change and how they met those particular challenges? Well, absolutely. Uh, I think that one of the programs for the state of Florida, the DEP, Department of Environmental Protection, is that they have a coastal vulnerability grant program for local governments. And they give out about $2 million a year, which doesn't sound like a lot of money, but for these local governments, and we've done, I think four and a half, uh, the half we participated with another vendor, but we've done um, Key Biscayne, we've done uh, Miami Shores, we've done um, uh, North Bay Village, uh, and uh, Bay Harbor Islands. Uh, and um, so these grants provide uh, funding for these local governments to do studies of what's coming at them now and in the future so that they can better prepare for it. So I think that's one really outstanding program for the state of Florida. Uh, and I think that that type of funding and those types of programs will only increase. So, uh, so I hope that answers your question. So with Coastal Risk Consulting, you seem to be offering a managed approach to climate-related challenges and using tech and reporting to develop strategies to meet those challenges. How did you come right. up with this idea? Well, it's an interesting story, really. Um, I was an environmental trial lawyer and law professor um, before I started <laughs> at the ripe old age of 65, um, before I started uh, Coastal Risk. And the last legal case that I did was, uh, I had pretty much spent my career representing environmental groups 
in anti-pollution cases. So the last case was um, the Miami Waterkeeper uh, or Biscayne Bay Waterkeeper against Miami-Dade County Water and Sewer. And they were violating the Clean Water Act. There was a lot of raw sewage going into Biscayne Bay and the Miami River. So the waterkeeper, as is you know the, the kind of thing that waterkeepers do, they wanted to you know, keep the, uh, the jurisdiction, Miami-Dade Water and Sewer, Miami-Dade County, uh, to, to adhere with the Clean Water Act, to adhere with the law and stop putting raw sewage into the waterways. So we sued them and uh, EPA joined in and um, pretty much immediately the, uh, the water and sewer department said, you know, you're right. We need to put a billion dollars into our sewer system and the sewage treatment plants and the pump stations. And we said, that's great, that's great. Well, we, we can settle the case, there's just one issue. And that issue is sea level rise. And uh, my experts who were Dr. Leonard Berry, from FAU, Dr. Brian Soden and Dr. Hal Wanless from University of Miami, uh, Dr. Pete Harlem from FIU um, and others, uh, were very um, uh, strong that the uh, sewage treatment plants were not climate ready, sea level rise ready and storm safe. They just weren't, They're, they were not protected, they were not hardened, they were not elevated. So for the first time in my career, of 40 years as an environmental trial attorney, I realized that the warming of the oceans and the rising of the sea level had tremendous implications for millions of people in the United States and around the world. Uh, one could say over a billion people around the world who live in cities on the coast and are at risk from climate change and sea level rise. So the case was, um, was settled favorably to the waterkeeper. Thanks a lot to Commissioner Suarez, um, Xavier Suarez's father, and, and his work in, in the council, uh, Miami-Dade um, uh, County, uh, to, to make everyone realize that the time had come to make these plants safer. And so I retired then after 40 years of practicing environmental trial law, but I wasn't done. I realized that there was a technology play here to create in the cloud a system, a technology that would do fast, accurate, and affordable risk assessments. Uh, and we started in the coastal area, as our name implies, coastal risk, but now we do inland, uh, all over the United States, Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico. We do work for NOAA, the National Weather Service on their buildings. We do some of the largest real estate investment trusts. We do banks to, for underwriting their loans. So it started in the coast. It started because I personally realized along with some of my experts, Dr. Barry and Dr. Soden, uh, that this was a need that was not being filled right now. And so our biggest, uh, and this, this talk that we're having is about the business of climate change. So business and corporations and particularly real estate investment trusts are our biggest set of clients right now. That's the vertical market that seems to really need our services right now. So what kind of modeling sources are you using when you're developing the reports? Um, where does the data come from that you use to generate the reports for these um, risk right. assessments? That's a good question. 
So we use a, uh, a combination of uh, proprietary data that we have licensed from others, uh, modeling that we have developed ourselves internally and open source data. But we look at um, whether when we use government data, for example, let's take FEMA flood maps, which is sort of the old um, standard. We include FEMA flood maps in our reports and our um, portfolio modeling because it's expected and it's a, another benchmark for people to look at and to compare our other modeling with FEMA flood maps. So we have a, what's called an API where we instantaneously bring into our score, our portfolio scoring and our individual reports, the FEMA flood maps from FEMA instantaneously, the most up to date, but that's just one view of risk. We're also providing heavy rainfall risk from satellite-based flood modeling. FEMA flood maps, people don't know this. I would you know, say 99% of the people who are gonna be listening or 99.9% .9 of the people who are gonna be listening to this do not know that they're making decisions on commercial buildings, on bank loans, on individual home purchases based on a FEMA flood map that does not include heavy rainfall flooding. And if you live here in South Florida and you know what the streets do in a heavy rainstorm and flooding when there's no name storm, we're not even in hurricane season and, and, and people are, are having flooding problems from heavy rainfall. Uh, Hurricane Harvey down in Houston, Texas, 200,000 homes flooded. Most of those were not in the FEMA flood zone. They were in a heavy rainfall zone. So that's one example. We do tsunamis on the West Coast, Florida and Puerto Rico. We do earthquakes and wildfires and tornadoes. So we look at these data sources, open data sources and government data sources. We vet them, we, we QA, QC, we check them out and we try to in, embed in our um, software, which is located in the Amazon cloud, the very best that we can get. But I, one thing is very important, Kevin, that I would like your viewers to understand. The, there is a lot of great data and analytics out there. And some of the tech companies that you'll hear from say, our, our risk assessments are the best, uh, are, are the be provide you with the best bad news that money can buy. And because our risk assessment is the best, better than anybody else's, uh, you as the client, you as the recipient of the bad news will, as a rational person, do the right thing and become resilient or elevate your home or put a barrier in or do something. And the answer is no, that's not true. What we have learned from our experience in working with clients of all different types is that you need not just the bad news, not just the so what, but the what's next. You need help with what's next because you know you sitting there, Kevin, if I did a report for your home or where your business is and there were risks, and then you would say, oh my goodness, uh, that doesn't look too good. And I'm, I'm kind of aware of this flooding that's happened, but you know, what do I do about it? I don't know, I'm not an expert. That's why we have, we have vertically integrated our company 
with a, a, an advisory services arm, which we call our be resilient process. So we have the risk footprint, which is a dashboard that people can subscribe to, businesses can, governments can subscribe to it and get the reports and get the portfolio analysis for reporting purposes or portfolio management, whatever they want to do. But then when they start to ask the what's next, we also have a, a process for them where we can guide them and guide them down the path of resilience. And our, our new connection and integration with the US Green Building Council uh, shows that we have been accepted by the Green Building Council in their lead and rely and pilot credits program, which is very important because the businesses have for 20 plus years have valued green building certification. But now the Green Building Council is realizing that greenness or what your building is doing to the planet is half of the uh, half of the coin, it's one side of a coin. The other side of the coin, which is where we come in, is what's the planet doing to your building? So you have one half of the coin, which is people have been looking at the CO2 emissions and recycling and solar and LED. That's one part of the coin. What's my building? What's my factory doing to the planet? But for all that time, those same companies who have wanted that certification really weren't doing enough to look at what's the planet doing to my business. And now the winds of change are here and it's coming from the EU with uh, something called the Task Force on Climate Dis uh, uh, Disclosure. In the US, we have the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board and we have other organizations like this, PRI, Principles for Responsible Investing, and I could go on and on, is that the winds are changing so that these are there, they're coming together of the two sides of the coin. What's the, what am I doing to the planet? Let's cut CO2 emissions and start, you know, becoming more green. And then also protecting my investments. So investors, when they look at my company can say, hey, this company is not only researching the risks, but they're doing something about it. And that's important as well. Albert, you know, it seems like these tools just aren't for choosing locations. So how does, um, you know, a, a person that's working on a project come up with a plan of action for a larger resiliency strategy, whether they're using coastal risk or they're trying to go about it on their own? Well, um, that's a good point. I mean, uh, we're trying to bring this all together, as I said, to make it um, fast, uh, accurate and affordable. Uh, there, truthfully, there is nothing that we do that can't be done by architects and engineers uh, by hand using whatever tools that they have, uh, but it'll take weeks and it'll cost uh, instead of what we charge, which uh, in the subscription model, it's $200 a property. Um, it, you know, it could cost $10,000 or $20,000 to do it by hand. And it's certainly not going to take 30 seconds. And we do any property, every property, any property in the United States, inland, remote Alaska. We did, you know, radar sites for NOAA in remote places in Alaska. You wouldn't believe. Uh, 
and and uh, so it's speeding it up. And then the next part, I think, to answer your question, is uh, once that information about the risks, the the hazards, the vulnerability, the sensitivity, the criticality of buildings, then the asset managers of these companies, the risk managers of these companies, uh, they need something, they need one more thing that we provide. A and that is uh, the cost benefit analysis of the risk mitigation investment. And our competitors do not provide this. We provide this. So when a business is saying, okay, Albert, you gave us the bad news. Now, what's next? And then we say, well, you could put a barrier system that could stay in a shed or in your basement of your building. And that when there's a storm coming, uh, this is what you do with it. And it's gonna cost a million dollars. Or you wanna put a self-closing flood barrier over your underground parking garage so the cars don't flood anymore down there when it rains or you have a storm. A million dollars, oh, we, we can't afford that. That's, that's too, too much. I said, well, well you know, so then the CEO says, well, what's the cost benefit? What's the ROI? So to do ROI, the, the cost of cost benefit, the cost is the cost of the barrier, let's just say, or, or to protect the underground parking garage. But what's the benefit? The benefit is avoidable losses. So we calculate using various systems in our, in our technology, in our code, the avoided and avoidable losses so that then the smart MBAs that they have working for them can go back and say, look, given our insurance, given our uh, deductibles, uh, you know, given how frequently it's been flooding or raining in this area or storms and it's getting worse because of climate change, here's the cost benefit. I have calculated the cost benefit of this million dollar investment to protect our building, which is a $50 million, $100 million building shopping center uh, Coca-Cola bottling plant, uh, what, you know, whatever. Uh, this is why we should or shouldn't invest that money. But the reason, Kevin, that the reason that, that this movement toward resilience hasn't picked up as much as it should because we want a society that is resilient, the reason is that the tools to get to that decision-making point have not been there. Now they are. And we wanna bring that to the market. We are bringing it to the market holistically, not just as I call them affectionately, the bad news bears who say, here's your bad news client, have a nice life. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. That's not going to get us to resilience. What about, you know like existing homeowners, what do these folks do to, to, to maybe make their properties more resilient to climate change? So when you go to www.riskfootprint.com, there's our, our website landing page, there's two boxes. Uh, one is for uh, homeowners and home buyers and realtors, and the other is for business and government. So you just choose which side of that you're on. And if you go to the residential side, uh, you can buy a report online. You can buy it today. You can buy it now and people do. And you'll have it the same day. Um, the first, uh, before getting answering your question about what they can do to make their property safer, there's two things. Home buyers typically, 
again, 90%, don't start their due diligence till they've signed an agreement of sale and they're in that inspection phase and they think that getting the FEMA flood zone determination and a termite inspection and you know whatever is enough. It isn't. They should be starting their due diligence of the neighborhood, of the community, of the house, way, way before they enter into an agreement of sale. Extremely important. They need to understand the insurance situation, whether they're going to be in a flood zone, FEMA flood zone or not. And even if they're not, which I'm not, I'm on a golf course in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, I'm in an X zone. When I got my mortgage, I didn't have to have flood insurance. But because I was in an X zone and with heavy rainfall risk, according to my report, I got, I got flood insurance for $450 a year. I have a risk. I have a risk of flooding. But the insurance company and FEMA and the NFIP go, oh, okay, uh, Albert, you're in an X zone. Uh, we're going to sell this to you for $450. I'm going like, sign me up. And most people in South Florida do not have, most, a majority of homeowners in South Florida do not have flood insurance. That's just a fact. And that's wrong. So they, they number one, home buyers need to start their due diligence. They can get their report anytime, night or day. Just go to that site. But they need to understand that even if they're not in a FEMA flood zone, they need flood insurance. Then if they decide to buy anyway, which is, it's not our issue. God, you know, God bless. Buy whatever you want to buy. Uh, but then if there are issues that need to be addressed with the house, uh, then we can point them in that right direction, whether it's uh, doorway barriers or removable barriers over the garage. A, a simple thing like a $150 backflow preventer in the lateral that the plumber can put in. Most homes in the low-lying areas of Miami Beach and, and areas like that, Las Olas Isles and Fort Lauderdale, you should have backflow preventers. Because what happens in these storms and these heavy rainfalls is that the municipal sewer system gets overpressurized by water leaking in and it goes back up the lateral and into people's toilets. And they have a little fountain of, of sewage uh, in, in, you know, uh, rising from their toilet on the ground floor. So, so there are simple things, raising the HVAC, your compressor on a platform. That's easy stuff to do. But is it being done? Not as much as it should. And what we, what we want, look, this is, if you want to look out to 2100 in South Florida in particular, it's not a pretty picture. So what's the, what's the plan? What's the goal? And that is to keep people safe and in their homes with, with uh, public utilities and roadways that work for as long as possible. Give us as much chance to, to get a handle on on the reduction of, of CO2 and, and cool down the climate and, and until we can do that. So we, want to, we don't want retreat. The thing that's going to be bad for South Florida, bad for America, bad for banks, bad for, for these local governments who are going to lose tax revenues is retreat. Retreat is not the word that we want to use. What we want to use is hold the line as long as possible and give ingenious, humans a chance to address what anyone who is conscious and, 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 and not completely infected by fake news and still believes in science knows what's coming at us isn't good. 
So we have to hold the line, but how are we gonna do that? We can only, Kevin, we can only hold the line if all the stakeholders are working together. We're all in the same leaky boat. We got to row together. When I was in high school and college, I was a rower. I, in high school, I won the national championship uh, in, in rowing. And we learned how to row together as like, a, like one person, one unit. It's, what's, what's happening is that you have this fragmentation of the homeowners, the business owners, the, uh, the local governments. So the local governments are saying, oh, we're gonna take care of this, or we're gonna take care of that, and we're gonna you know, do this infrastructure, we're gonna raise this road. But they're not saying to the business owners, your building has flooded, your underground parking has flooded. You cannot just sit pat and wait for us to save you. You've got to do something. And cities did this with fire codes. They made existing buildings put in sprinkler systems and fire alarms and fire protection. So municipalities have the legal right under safety and police power to make existing building owners do things to keep their tenants and retail and lobbies safe. They can do that. They're not doing it, but they can do it in their building codes. They're mostly the building codes are all for new construction or substantial renovations. But we, that's only 5% of the building stock. We need 90% of the building stock in the, in the at-risk areas. And I don't care whether it's the Mississippi River or uh, you know, I don't care if it's, uh, you know, Miami Beach, commercial buildings need to do their risk assessments, figure out if they're in a red flag zone, and then do what is necessary to hold the line as we as a society try to cool things down and reduce CO2 emissions. You just touched on this a moment ago, but um, I I'd, I'd kind of imagine this depends on the project and customer, but how far out are folks modeling their projects? like? 10 years, 30 years, or up to 100 years, maybe? That's a really good question. And the answer depends on who is the project um, sponsor, if you will. Okay, so let's, let's take different groups. Let's take developers. Developers are flippers. They develop a, a building to, to the building code, precisely to the building code. They get the approval. They do it and they just want to minimize their costs, they want to flip it to a REIT or they want to flip it to uh, an HOA. Uh, and, and that's it. They're, they're, they're looking right now, the year it's completed, and they don't care about the future generally. That's not you know 100%, but generally that's true. Then you have um, some real estate investment trusts that are buy and hold. And Mostly, we represent buy and hold. For example, an apartment, uh, an apartment REIT, a REIT that owns apartment complexes, they're buy and hold. Uh, they're not flipping these things regularly, so they're more looking at a 30-year or maybe even a 50-year uh, time frame. Uh, then, uh, uh, you know, certainly if you have industry, like if you have uh, a data center that's owned by, uh, you know, Microsoft or Google or, uh, uh, you know, uh, there there are leases uh, that are ten-year leases, and for some commercial real estate investments, uh, they have uh, a commercial uh, mortgage-backed security (CMBS) 
which is a 10 year duration. So they have been looking at 10 years, but they're looking at 20 years now because they realize in the 10th year when they go to sell it, that the new buyer is going to look 10 years in the future for the CMBS in the secondary market. So they're now beginning to look at 20 years. Okay, now I've given you immediate developer. I've given you 10 years for CMBS. I've given you 20 years for some CMBS. Then I, I've given you 30 years for, let's just say, buy and hold uh, commercial real estate. Then when you get into local governments, for example, the Southeast Florida uh, Climate Compact recommends 50 years and 70 years. So um, 50 years for some in infrastructure and for critical infrastructure like utilities, 70 years into the future. So once you start looking 50 to 70 years into the future, it's not looking good for South Florida. I mean, let's, let's be real. It's just really not looking good. So what does that mean? It means that the planning of how we're going to adjust to this has to get going now. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I really admire and uh, agree with uh, Mayor Levine, of, uh, the former mayor of Miami Beach. And he said something that I often repeat. And he said that 20, 30 years ago, Miami Beach didn't look anything like it looks today. And 30 years from now, it's not gonna look like it does today. So that's the thing that we have to keep in mind that there is going to be change in the building stock, older, lower buildings and homes will be demolished. Properties will be raised. They will be elevated. Soil will be brought in, roads will be raised and there will be other adaptations that will go on. It just will because it's so darn valuable. You know, location, location, location. And we humans love the water. We love looking at it. We love boating on it. We love swimming in it or walking on the beach or whatever it is. So it's going to hold value in those areas that can adapt, but that's not everywhere. And so the, one of the biggest risks is this domino effect. If, you have, if you're Miami-Dade County, for example, uh, and you have certain areas in the county because of their, their planning, because of their tax revenues, uh, th that they can adapt and they can become resilient, but others can't, then the question, is there a domino effect where some communities that, you know, are just going underwater and other areas aren't? And I'll give you an example. Uh, in Palm Beach, in, in uh, Palm Beach, uh, I, I helped a, a REIT buy an apartment uh, complex, uh, apartment building, quite a large building in West Palm Beach. And it looked good. It really looked good. And then uh, the Chamber of Commerce uh, of the Palm Beaches asked me to do their building, which is right off the intercoastal. And that looks bad. And it looks bad now. And I had a conversation with them. They said, yeah, that's exactly where the king tides are. Where, where you showed in your report, that's exactly where it is right now during king tide season, not in some dystopic future 20 years from now. That's where it's happening right now. So even in West Palm Beach, you have areas that are high and dry and are fine and the roadways are fine. And then you have other areas. 
And the question is, what are you doing with those red zone, red flag areas? And do you have the commitment to bring them up uh, so that, you know, you're raising all the, all the ships, if you will, and, and, and not leaving some behind? Because if you leave some behind, your tax revenues are going to go down. So it sounds like you're seeing local governments starting to develop those climate change uh, or climate risk strategies. And I imagine that a lot of um, larger counties have been working on this for, for a while. But what about those smaller cities and counties? What are they doing from the planning side when it comes to resiliency? Well, unless they're funded um, by the state and they've gotten their uh, grant applications in and get in line and, and get the, the money for planning, they're probably not doing much because, um, you know, it is expensive. And the states, let's just say, giving out $75,000 grants for, you know, for local government. But still, that's, that's not a lot of money, you know, to, to do this. And then once, uh, once they have those vulnerability and adaptation plans, then they have, um, to, to do something. And I'll give you an example of Miami Shores, which was one of our uh, clients where we did the report for them. And then in just one neighborhood, they used the report kind of like the Bible to, to go back to uh, the state and they got a $1.9 million stormwater grant for just one neighborhood. But using our report to show the state that this was really a dire situation in this part of Miami Shores that they needed to do. And that's what these reports really are important to local governments because without them, they are like having one arm tied behind their back in the hunt for uh, federal funding, state funding, uh, county funding, that sort of thing. Albert, this is something that I've been asking a lot of the folks we've been talking to what do you think the Florida legislature should be doing to help businesses adjust uh, to these new climate challenges? And are there things that lawmakers are doing now? Yeah, um, so the, the Florida legislature passed a law uh, this year that requires, uh, in, in a few years, it's going to require uh, buildings that are built with state funds uh, in these coastal areas that are affected by sea level rise to, um, to do a study before they're going to be approved to use state, state funding. So obviously that was a big, um, and, and I thought really that that is a model that could also be used with commercial buildings, uh, which is if you're going to build, uh, so, so it really has to do with the building codes, I think, and the state building codes. So after Hurricane Andrew, the state building codes uh, and also building codes in Miami-Dade County and the, and the communities that were affected by Andrew, those codes changed for wind and how roof tie downs and, and we became much stronger with regard to wind. We did not become stronger and the codes did not do much in the area of flooding. So. To me, there's no reason why the state couldn't essentially say, developers, if you're tearing down old, risky, lower buildings, yes, you have to, um, and, and for example, in, in Miami Beach, they raised 
the, the minimum elevation, which called the base flood elevation and the finished floor elevations are higher now, but they still allow underground parking. So shouldn't commercial buildings by state law and, and the state building code be required to do these types of studies before they get their building permits. And I think that when you're talking about these high rise towers, which are fine, I mean, you know, we're all in favor of businesses uh, building, but we want them not to just be the minimum, not to just uh, be sort of a little bit elevated, but still very vulnerable. We'd like them to be buildings that last because we need all the parties to have their properties last, whether it's homes, whether it's commercial, and whether it's government infrastructure. And I go back to the Waterkeeper lawsuit where we got the, the uh, Miami-Dade County Water and Sewer to agree to raise and harden the sewage treatment plants. And if you go to the Water, water Department website, you'll see that the main element of resilience that they show on their website is how they're, they're improving the safety of the sewage treatment plants. So it, it's, it's, it's good, that is good. And it needs to be done all over the country, all over the world in these coastal areas and the sewage treatment plants. But unless all of the stakeholders are rowing together, I get back to the rowing analogy, unless they're all rowing together, the fact that you've got uh, these hardened or if you will, bomb-proof water utilities, right? It's not going to help if people are heading for the exits because it's too wet and they haven't done what needs to be done themselves. Albert, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Kevin. I appreciate uh, your time and appreciate being here and happy holidays to you.